I want to kind of push your thinking to some of the stuff that's happened over the last week or so and uh, how it impacts us. How many of you watch some kind of a news program, whether it's online or, you know, TV or satellite, whatever, some keep up with the news, all right? Isn't that a depressing thing to do? Uh, one of the big things that is on the international plate these days is what kind of response is any, if, what kind of response, if any, should we as a world take as it relates to Syria and their use of chemical weapons on their people? And that's been dominating the news and you find people on all sides of all fences relative to what should or should not be done. Uh, and so I want you to kind of take that and that's a very serious thing. I want you to set it off to the side. If you haven't been following that, then here's the kind of the synopsis of it. Uh, there, it is alleged that the leaders of Syria have used chemical weapons on their own people. And many women, children, uh, and men have died in the process of that. That's one thing I want you to set it off on the side because there's another major event that's happened over the last, I don't know exactly how long, but came to my attention this week. Uh, and it ranks pretty high on some of our lists. Someone in our church this week helped me out greatly through Facebook by letting me in on the secret that Bluebell has a new flavor of ice cream. <laughs> Life is good in the promised land. Peanut butter chocolate, I think, something like that, okay? Now, I know some of you are out there thinking already, did he just say there's a new flavor of Bluebell? And in your minds, you've gone to Bluebell land, I know you have, all right? But others out there are going, he's just talking about blue in the same breath as he's talking about chemical weapons being used in Syria. What's wrong with this preacher? We don't have time to talk about what's wrong with me, but let me just show you why I put those two together. Reality in our life seems to be that we regularly encounter things that push us into decision mode. Kind of takes me back to some times with uh, with my dad as I was growing up, and particularly in this case, uh, I was on staff with him. I was a youth minister of church; he was the pastor. And I went in to him and I said, "Look, I have we have you know, we have this problem, which really meant I had one, and I was hoping he would help me out with it." And uh, he said, "Well, explain it to me." So I laid it all out, and then he said, "So what do we need to do about that?" I said, well, really, the only thing we can do is, and I told him what the only thing we could do was. And he looked at me and said, almost an exact quote, that's about the most idiotic thing you've ever said. My dad had a way with words to just grab your attention. Now, he went on to say, you don't really believe that there's only one response to that situation, do you? Well, he had already had accomplished what he wanted to, which was to make me think. Here's the long and short of it. He began to teach me from that point forward. He always had these ways of saying stuff that made it hang in your head, and that's why I still have them these days. Here's what he would say. In any situation, any problem that you face, there are always at least three options on how you respond. First of all, and, oh, by the way, that applies to those two things that I started with today. 
the thing in Syria, and the bluebell question. Should I or should I not have some bluebell? Now, the only real answer is yes. But my dad says there's three options. All right? So hang on. Here's the first option. You can always take the option of doing nothing. So if that's what you choose. Now, by the way, that's one of the options on the table about Syria. But that's a terrible option for the bluebell question. Right? Because if you say, I'm going to do nothing to this new flavor of bluebell, that means you're going to miss what heaven in a cup tastes like, to borrow what Mike Martin told me one time about something else. Heaven in a cup is labeled bluebell ice cream. And you can do nothing. Bad choice. Maybe. Here's another option, he said. You can do nothing or you can do something. Now, here's where people tend to get messed up. All right? Because if you do something, there is no real question about what it is that you're going to do. You just got to do something. Because, you know, after all, I got all of this energy built up because of this situation. So I got to do something, preacher. That leads me to the third option. And this is the one we should always default to. You can do the right thing. You can do nothing. You can do something. Or you can do the right thing. So any situation that comes at you, and I'm going to go ahead and put this in the uh, language of the series that we're in here. Actually, it's a mini-series within the bigger series of Luke's Gospel. We're talking about our responsibility as storytellers of the good news of Jesus Christ as we step off of the campus here and into the real world out there. We have an obligation to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. But there's this part of us that gets sidetracked before we ever get out there into storytelling mode. And that's the inner struggle of the Christian life. And so we're looking at this section of Scripture where Jesus is being tempted by Satan in Luke chapter 4. And as we come to it, Jesus gives us a model of how to handle our temptations that come at us, whether it's bluebell ice cream or whatever your chosen point of... uh, of temptation happens to be that sin that so easily besets us. We'll come to that in just a second. But here's what I want you to get from this message today. When temptation comes and your fellowship with God is on the line, you need to be ready with a strategic response to that temptation. Don't do nothing. Don't just do something. Do the right thing. Luke chapter 4 we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. And I know that in the deal it says 1 through 14. That's the whole passage. We're ultimately going to cover all of that. Last week I gave you the overview. This week we kind of plow into a single temptation. So we're going to be in the first four verses, mostly in the third and fourth verse. In verse 1 it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended... He was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, I want to come to that in just a second, but there are several conversations this week lead me to come back to, to say two things very quickly before we jump into this one, the first of the, of the temptations that Jesus gets. First of all, there is this ongoing debate 
My personal opinion is it's not that big of a debate because the answer is so self-evident. And yet there is still that question that hangs in some scholars' mind, or alleged scholars, I guess I should say at this point. And that is, was Jesus really tempted? You know, it says that here, but after all, he's the son of God and, you know, food. If you've been without food for 40 days, what's number 41? So is this really a temptation to Jesus? Here's my quick answer. Okay, now we could talk about it a long time if you want, but let me just boil it down to this. Scripture is very clear that this is real. Okay, first of all, it says it here. The word itself means tempted. Okay, if you take the word in English, take it back to Greek, it means tempted. All right, that's pretty self-evident. If that's not enough for you in the Hebrews chapter 4, verse 17, I won't go to the whole verse. I'll just tell you essentially what it says. As, as the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus and he's our great high priest and he exceeds that of the earthly high priest in the Jewish system, it says that Jesus was tempted just like we are and yet was without sin. Okay? These are real temptations. If you think that it's not, then you're defaulting to the God part of him and leaving the man part of him out of the equation. Real temptations. Now, maybe it's a good time for us then to come to the other thing I want to tell you, and that is we should decide what temptation really means. In this case, the word means it is an enticement to evil. We'll probably need to discuss that a little bit. We'll do it as we go. But let me, let me make sure we get this. I, I, one of the things I love about East Texas is we are, can I say we now? I've been here two years. Do I qualify? We have a great perception about enticing animals to evil. Today's the first day of dove season, Right? Some of you already been out hunting today, I, I'm, I'm guessing. But let me pull it off of that one. Deer season's right around the corner. <sighs> Smell it coming. <clears throat> but let me move us into the fishing realm, okay? I love fishing. And, and one of the things that we do, whether you like live bait or artificial bait, when you take a rod and a reel and that line and you tie a bait to the end of it. Let's say it's an artificial lure and you take, by the way, the lure, the word lure ought to mean something to us. And you take that and you throw that, cast that, excuse me, you don't throw the whole thing. You just cast the lure and it hits the water and it drops into the water. We are enticing fish to evil. And if we're successful, they die. you got to love that. You know, survival of the fittest and all that kind of stuff. You know, the most intelligent rises. We figured out a way to make a fish think that looks great. Swack. And then we have supper. That's a lure. That's a temptation. It is an enticement to what is ultimately evil for that fish. The end of his days. That's this word picture. So when we come to talk about temptation, we have to realize that what we're talking about is this enticement that the enemy, Satan, brings into our lives and he bumps up against us. And as we talked about last week, 
this evil that I'm talking about is anything in our lives that comes to compromise our fellowship with God. Now, the relationship, if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Christ, you trust him as your savior, that relationship is secure, but the fellowship is on the line every moment of every day, and Satan knows that. He's already lost the war with your soul, and so he comes in to try to destroy the fellowship that you have with God. You know, John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that you may have life, have it abundantly, and churches are full of people who have no clue experientially what that means. Because Satan is excellent at enticing us to destroyed fellowship with God. Temptation is a real deal. It is a problem for us Christian people all across the world and all through history have succumbed to the enticement of the enemy and have little to show in their Christian lives because of it. So let's look at this temptation again that Jesus faces. It's the first one. As I read through it again, what I really want you to do is I want you to see if you can kind of settle into the nature of this one, okay? I know what it says, but let's see if we can settle into the nature of what's, uh, what's going on here. So verse 3, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Let's stop for just a second. It's important that we get from this that the word if here as Luke pulls it over, is a Greek word in the construction. By the way, that's my granddaughter walking out. Well, my wife's holding her, but that's my granddaughter. So I just got enticed totally away from the sermon because of... (laughs) So the word if here is used in a construction in the Greek language that affirms the reality. It's not Satan saying to Jesus, I'm not really sure that you're this son of God anyway. It's not what he's saying at all. Satan is fully aware of who this is. He's fully aware of what's going on in this mission that Jesus is on. And so he comes and he says to Jesus, essentially, and we could just as easily and just as rightly translate this word if with the word since. Since you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What's Jesus' response to that? Now, his response is, he quotes a verse of scripture. We're going to come to that in just a little bit, but he says... And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So what's the real nature of the, transla- of, of the, uh, of the temptation here? I, I think, and I hope that you'll really stay with me over the next few minutes now, because I think that this is perhaps the kind of temptation that we are most susceptible to falling to. You may be sitting there and you're looking at it going, eh, you know, food's just not that big a deal to me. I had a friend of mine, a Marine, years ago, he said, you know, I, 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 I look at food, he said, I don't see this everybody else sees. He's, you know, comfort food, I don't even know what that means. He said, they taught us in the Marine, food is fuel. I just eat it when I need it. So there are people out there, I don't understand them, there are people out there that food is not that big a deal to them. I pray for those kind of people all the time. So... We've got to be careful because if we just take this so literally that we think that Jesus' only temptation here was at the point of food. Yeah, he'd been without food for 40 days. Maybe he was hungry, but was, what's, if you're going 40, why not 41? 
was it really the bread that was the temptation here? Or there's something else here? And my answer is there's definitely something else going on here. It is so subtle, this thing that I'm talking about. We're going to make sure that we get it. What are you, see, I put this on, on Twitter last night and goes to Facebook. And I, I, was, I, I really wanted to ask this question. What tempts you the most? And about the time I had it typed in, was about to hit send, I thought, wait a minute, somebody might answer that. On pub- you realize that those are public things, right? And so people read that stuff. And so I thought, if I put what tempts you the most, and somebody comes back and says, the thoughts of killing preachers, then I thought, everybody in the world is going to know that that person is going to kill somebody. So I, th- I changed it up. I want you to think, what is it that tempts you the most? And with that, and this is where I did go with what I posted there to try to get you thinking about today, uh, there are some people that think that, you know, you just can't win over temptation. It just, it's a fact of life. It's going to come at you. And, and so I asked the question, is there any sin that you have to commit? If you say, you know, preacher, you cannot win over temptation, then that tells me that there's a sin that you absolutely must commit. I don't believe that's scriptural, by the way. So the other one is, if you can win over temptation, then how do you win? So what Jesus does here is helpful for us because it not only does he give us an answer, an easy answer on how to withstand it, that you could just quote scripture, rub the genie in the bottle and it'll help you out, but there's more to it than that. Understand the nature of the temptation, and we find that in the way Jesus answers here. This is subtle, this particular temptation. I saw it yesterday. We, some, I think I saw it on TV. I'm not sure. I made a comment, and all of a sudden, we were committed, okay? Uh, PetSmart was having some big Labor Day sale. Now, what that means is they're fixing to get road travel money. That's what that means at our house, all right? So we go to PetSmart, and I know some of the rest of you were there through the course of the day. But while we were there, Lauren, Lauren has a dog, uh, not my dog, will never be my dog, okay? Um, but she's cute for a dog. Um, and Lauren's little dog needed some supplies. Rain boots, to be exact. <laughs> now, you can talk to Lauren about the rain boot thing, all right? They make for great picture taking I do, and a hilarious watch this dog walking with rain boots on. But anyway, that's beside the point. So we're heading into Beaumont to do the rain boot mission. And as we're going, I have this laboratory of sermon illustration preparation going on. Happens every time I get in a car. I start talking about temptation and thinking about our Christian lives and Life just unfolds in front of me as I'm driving down the highway. What does it mean when somebody runs a red light in front of a police officer? I did not, okay? In case you're thinking it was me, it wasn't me. We were headed down one of the major, not, well, okay, major drive in, <laughs> in Beaumont, and as we're going, the light as we're about to go under it, it turns yellow. So I go through it. The guy behind me, who's maybe 50 yards behind me, sees it also. 
I can hear him speed up and he goes through it. And I look off to the side and there's a police officer coming up the road. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you're getting yours now. But I want to get into the head of that person. By the way, if that was you, you didn't get a ticket. I don't know how that happened, but you didn't. So Merry Christmas. What's in the head of somebody who's driving down the road and the light turns red by the time they went through it and their thought process is, I'm going anyway. You ever thought about that? You know what has to be part of the mix somewhere? My schedule is more important than anything else. It's more important than your safety. In that case, it's more important than potentially getting a ticket. My schedule is more important than anything else. That captures the human condition. And by the way, it's what's the undertone of this particular temptation. It's a subtle thing for us, but yet it's there. Here's the principle I want you to get. Got it on the screen. We are all faced with the temptation to use our position with God for personal gain. You catch that? In our life, there are those things that we come across where we believe because we're Christian people, we shouldn't have to go through that. The way that hits us and the way it comes across is it's the, it's, it's the pollution of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray where he said that we're supposed to pray to God uh, your will be done. But we change that around to let my will be done. And we hide behind our relationship with God in order to pull that off. So here's a principle I want you to get. You've got to get this because it's what drives this whole thing in this one particular uh, temptation that Jesus faces. Anytime I elevate my desires above God's design, I sin. I know that's not popular in churches. We're not really supposed to talk about sin anymore and certainly not supposed to call it out in church. But the reality is, and it's what's driving all of this, if Satan can get Jesus because of his position, since you're the son of God, that's a big church word. That's why I said it like those old preachers. You're the son of God. You shouldn't have to go through this. Look at who you are. You shouldn't be hungry. Anytime I elevate my desires above God's design, I sin. In case you're not seeing that in the text, let me remind you of a couple of things here. First of all, why was Jesus in the wilderness in the first place? You remember that? If you don't, look at verse 1. It says, after that baptism thing and the Holy Spirit and the voice from heaven and all of that stuff, after that happened, it says in verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If you go to one of the other, other gospel writers, they changed the word. It's not was led by the Spirit. He was driven by the Spirit. We talked last week, why the wilderness, what's going on there. And one of the things that we emphasized there was that's where the fellowship part of it happens. God says to Jesus there in the Jordan River, you're my son, I'm proud of you. Now, 
get out to the wilderness because we got some business to do, you and me. So for 40 days, another gospel writer says he fasted. The connection, the fellowship with God as he's about to embark on this public ministry that ultimately ends on the cross where all of mankind has their sin atoned for. God says, get out there. We've got business to do. And it's in that context that Satan comes in and he says, you know, really your desires are much more important than what God has designed for you. Aren't you hungry? He wasn't eating because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that whole thing was going on. We're going to talk next week in here about that being filled with the Holy Spirit and Luke's emphasis on that all the way through. It is a life of intimacy with God, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is embarking on at this point for his public ministry. And all of that is at stake when Satan comes in and he says, Yeah, 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 that stuff will wait. Aren't you hungry? And God was intentionally doing something in Jesus' life here which at least resulted in or was involved not eating and the whole thing revolves around this fellowship with God. And Satan steps into that and he says, I got a better plan for you. This wasn't just about Jesus being hungry. It was all about circumventing God's plan for Jesus' life. And any time, you know, God has a plan for your life. That verse from John that I quoted a few moments ago. God's plan for your life, at the very least, is that you have a life that is incredible. You experiencing that today? How are things with you? Churches are full of Christian people who made a decision and got dunked and left Jesus in the baptismal waters and it's like he never existed outside of that. They're living lives, as one guy said, of quiet desperation. And some of them not so quiet. Is that you today? Satan comes knocking. You know, he doesn't come the front door. The front door is, you're hungry, here's some bread, eat up. That's the front door temptation. Here's some bluebell. Knock yourself out. Okay. The side door entrance. The back door entrance was when Satan comes in and says, you're a little bit hungry here. But in the process of that, what he knows is if he can just get you to live to your desires rather than God's design, you've fallen. And by the way, when you fall like that, all of that abundant life gets pushed back. It's not that it's gone. It's just that it's not as readily available for you. And so it becomes a life of self-focus as opposed to God and his mission and his design for us. And the temptation that Satan hits us with looks like food, but in reality, it's all about who's going to be God today. That looks... It's one thing to say that in here. It's another thing when you get out and start living it. So let me see if I can put a few things out there for you to hang on to what this looks like in real life. Um, Evaluate your prayer life for the last week. What are the things that dominate the requests that you have of God? And I want you to use this statement that I've given you there as the filter. 
you know, God, I sure could use more money. You know, God, I could sure use a better job. You know, God, I could sure use less of her. Now, those may not be bad prayers, but they might be, depending on what God's design for your life is. And we love to trot out those little verses like and he, he says, ask for the desires of your heart. Ask for whatever you wish and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But the problem with that, we take those totally out of context. The context of those things is he needs to be the desire of your heart. See, that doesn't play well on TV. So we just kind of push that off to the side and we say, you just pray. You know, and here's another way we do this, okay? My prayer is, Lord, you know, that dude on TV said that if I just trust you enough, I'll get out of this pain that I'm in. Is that a good prayer? Or is that a religious temptation that the enemy throws at us? Here's a news flash for you. Nowhere in Scripture will you find Christians being exempted from pain and trouble. If you find it in your, in your Bible... You got the wrong Bible. I don't know what you're reading, but it ain't the one that I read, okay? Now, I know there's coming a day, okay? But these people that I'm hearing this from on TV, they're not talking about coming today. They're talking about today's your day. Really? Well, let's do this. Let's take a couple of verses of Scripture here. Let's go back to what Jesus uses as his answer. Because the the simple-minded approach to handling temptation is to just say, well, Jesus quoted Scripture, so if I just memorize enough Scripture, I'll quote something and Satan has to leave. Let's see how that works for you. Because there's more to it than that, and Jesus gives us that as we look, if we look a little bit more closely at what he says. So what I want you to do now is I want you to go back to the book of Deuteronomy with me, and we're going to finish here, just not immediately. All right? His, His response is instructive for us. And he's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, the way that he quotes it comes out of the third verse, and it's actually the last part of the third verse, where it says, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the quote that Jesus pulls over. But I want you to see that there's more to this handling temptation, and a strategic response to temptation is not just quoting a verse, it's knowing what Scripture says. So here's what we find. Three different statements, if you will. Here's the first one. God gives Israel, as as they're going into the promised land, Deuteronomy is kind of a recap of what God has done with them, including the law. As we come to chapter 8, what we find is God, through Moses, says to the children of Israel, here's some things for you to remember as you go over. And here's the first one. God gives Israel what I call a relationship or a fellowship rule. Essentially, he's saying, do this and you will live and you will prosper and you will fulfill your purpose. And if you don't remember what Israel's purpose was, you can go back in the book of Exodus and you can find that he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation to show the world God's love and grace. That's their purpose. And they're his children and they walk. And so we read this in verse 1 of chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. 
Remember that thing about my desires when they get more than God's design? That's the design part right there. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. After all of this time, after all of this investment that God had with the children of Israel, from Abraham all the way through and into slavery and then for 40 years in the wilderness with the manna and the rock that gave water and the shoes that didn't wear out and the battles that, you know, the sun's, you know, just all kinds of stuff that God had done for them. He says, don't forget to live according to the design that I gave you when you go in to take that promised land because when you live according to that design, then these things follow. So here's the principle that we get from that. This is the background of what Jesus is saying. Here's the principle. Failure to live in proper fellowship with God short circuits our quality of life and our ability to fulfill our purpose. Please don't miss that. That's a little bit of last week's sermon and a lot of this week's sermon. But when we choose to live to our desires above God's design... We short-circuit the process of the life that he gives. And as storytellers, we step right out of being effective. So the first part of this whole temptation that we get comes at us in this form. Talked about that last week. We're tempted to short-circuit the fellowship with God. That's verse 1. Verse 2 and most, or the first half of verse 3 give us the second one. Let's read that. So it picks up in verse 2, and it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you should keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In other words, what... God is saying to those children of Israel on the verge of going in and conquering the promised land is, you want to know why you spent 40 years in the wilderness? Because what was in your heart needed to be exposed as contrary to God's design. Your desires were more important to you than his design. And so for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, God stirred the pot So that garbage would rise to the top and they would be humbled in the process. Here's the principle. Sometimes we face trials and testing that is so... uh, Sometimes we face trials and testing so that selfish motives and behavior that dishonors God might be exposed. (laughs) So let me go back to your prayer life for a second. You're facing trial... And you got more month than you have money left for the month. And you go to God and you say, God, I need money. And God said, no, that's really kind of your problem. You need money more than you need me. So let's deal with that. Well, we go to God. <laughs> Let me get, um, okay. Now, I see, I came from South Texas for 20 years. And I came to East Texas and I've been here two and a half. Can I? Uh, there are cultural differences. 
One of the things that I've learned in East Texas is that I can have a problem with somebody and culturally it's okay with me never to talk to them about it but to mentally destroy them. Does that sound right? Am I reading that right? So my issue with somebody, I don't ever really have to go talk to them. I just wish evil on them from a distance. Now we cover that by saying, well, I'm praying for them as people. Yeah, I'm praying the Lord will strike them dead. Actually, that's too easy. What I want to do for people that hurt people that I love, I want to pray, God make them suffer. I have a propensity towards real evil thinking. Like, you know, one of these terrorists, why don't we just go strap them to the top of the Empire State Building and just leave them there for however long it takes for nature to take its course? That's evil. But you see, what happens is... God allows stuff into our lives. And sometimes that stuff that comes into our lives is other people. And they're messy and the way they do stuff is messy. And it causes me to step back sometimes and go, you don't deserve God's best. So I'm going to do my best to help you get what you deserve. I never talk to you about it. That's the biblical way. We don't necessarily do that. But in the process of doing that, we're raising our own desires above what God's design is. And Satan is coming in, not even knocking on the side door of our life. He just comes rushing into that wide open door and he says, I've gotten you now and your fellowship is compromised. God said to the children of Israel, that hard stuff in your life, those things of walking through the desert, drinking rocky water, all of those things I allowed into your life in order to get you in position for fellowship with me. And so that takes us to the third level, which is where Jesus quotes, okay? So Satan says, aren't you hungry? Turn this stone into bread. But Jesus now, when he goes back and he quotes the end of this, he pulls the entire meaning along with him and he says, in effect, Satan, I know that what you're after is to destroy my fellowship with God and just because my desires are such that I'm hungry right now, I am not willing to compromise my fellowship with my Heavenly Father just to get what I want. God intentionally acts so that he can take us deeper in our faith. Last principle, what God uses to build our trust in him, we often seek to avoid. In other words, we elevate our desires above his design and we sin. And Satan says, aren't you tired of being broke? Get a new job. Aren't you tired of the way that person talks about you? Destroy their character. Aren't you tired of being sick? Ask God to take it away. I wonder what God says about those things. Satan is too smart to hit you right between the eyes with a temptation that he knows you're not going to fall for. But he loves the back door and the side door where he comes in and he just little by little gets to whittle away at your fellowship with God. And he does that by getting us to relax God's standards to fit our desires. So there's always three options. Remember that where we started today? 
You can do nothing when temptation comes. You can do something, just anything when temptation comes. Or you can do the right thing. So one last thing. Let me give you a strategic response. When you know that you're facing something in your life that has the chance of whittling away in your fellowship with God, three things, three questions to ask yourself. First of all, what is God trying to teach me in this? Rather than just defaulting to I need relief, ask the question, God, what are you trying to teach me here? Secondly, it's a good thing to know what does Scripture say about this situation in my life? Now, this is a good time for me to remind you, don't wait until, don't wait until it hits you in the face and then take your Bible and go, I don't know what it says. So, okay, go out and kill yourself. No, that's not what God wants me to do. You need to know God's word. You need to be every day feeding on scripture so that in the moment of crisis, the Holy Spirit pulls it up and breathes life into it for you. What does scripture say about my situation here? And thirdly, Am I trying to play God in this situation the way I handle it? If you could get through those three questions before you act on the temptation that hits you, you have a better chance of an intimacy with God that takes you deeper and deeper into that abundant life that he promised. Strategic response. What are you facing today? What are you going to do about it? Where's God in it? Let's pray. And so, Father, we come and we ask you to take this message and get it all down deep into who we are. So many times we buy into a world system that elevates personal design and pushes your design to the side. So help us to break out of that system through the power of your Spirit Give us a fellowship that is so strong that we never would intentionally want to walk away from that. Help us to see. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the ability to process information to know when Satan is coming in his subtle and strategic ways to whittle away at our fellowship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let me ask you to stand, if you will. Head still bowed and eyes still closed for a few minutes. Invitation time is the most important time of the message. What are you going to do with what God's been talking to you about today? It may have nothing to do with what I've been preaching about. You've been sitting there and the Holy Spirit's been at work on you about something in your life. Maybe it's to give your life to Him. <laughs> Now's the time to do that. No reason to wait. You know what kind of life awaits you. Why don't you do that if that's who you are today? Many of us have bought into a Christianity that is all fluff. It's just a bunch of stuff. It's a bunch of rote memory and a bunch of routine stuff. We've lost the emphasis on a personal, vibrant fellowship with the Holy God that he gives us every day. And our lives show it. You're not happy. Things are not well. Maybe you're not even sure why you just wandered in here today. And now you know God's saying, I want to take you to a better place. I want you to do something about it. Today's the day. Whatever God's telling you, do it. 